Hi-ho, this is Jordan, and you're listening to Drawing Controversy, a podcast that has had quite a hiatus that will soon return to go over even more controversial cartoons and the people who make them. I'm dropping right now an interview I recorded almost a year ago with a very witty and crafty writer named Mark Hill. I originally came to know Mark through his articles published in Crack.com. When I started Drawing Controversy in the summer of 2022, I knew I had to do an episode on the increasingly controversial cartoonist, author, speaker, and business owner known as Scott Adams. Adams created Dilbert, a workplace parody comic strip that started in 1989 and has been ongoing since. My dad, a business author and speaker, loved Dilbert, and I occasionally read the comic from time to time. If you've never heard of Dilbert or weren't ever a fan, don't worry, Mark will explain that all soon because there was once a time this strip was as big as The Simpsons. If at any point you did like Dilbert, you too probably thought Scott Adams was a lucky guy. He's this quirky, sort of nerdy person who got really rich off his comics, books, speaking gigs, and merchandising empire. Hell, Mark sent me a whole video of Adams touring his enormous house, and I couldn't help but hide my envy. Could that house have been mine had I too come up with a comic strip parodying the banalities of work meetings and my stupid co-workers? Of course, there was plenty to criticize about the comic strip Dilbert once he realized he was a Trump-supporting Twitter brain troll always making provocative rants to generate internet outrage. Really, it seemed like the Dilbert guy's brain melted. And that's why I invited Mark on Drawing Controversy, because he in fact wrote an article called How Did the Dilbert Guy's Brain Melt? The reason I didn't just publish this interview with Mark Hill right away was because essentially, I wanted to save my best podcast for last. We're first going to go over Mark's writing career, his interest in cartoons, as well as a few other articles he wrote that I'll provide a link to, and then we'll get into the cultural significance of Dilbert and the downward spiral of Scott Adams. I'm releasing this podcast right now because a weird thing happened nine months after Mark and I had our conversation. Dilbert, the comic strip, was dropped by hundreds of newspapers in February of 2023 following a rant Scott Adams made on a YouTube video he uploaded where he said black Americans were a hate group that white people needed to get the hell away from. Scott Adams' comments were made in response to a Trump-endorsed pollster survey which reported that nearly half of all black Americans disagreed with the phrase, it's okay to be white. I'm going to provide links in my show notes because in case you didn't know, the phrase it's okay to be white is a dog whistle phrase invented by white supremacists. Mark and I don't talk about this incident because it hadn't happened yet, but really we should have seen it coming and I'm sure the news is going to get even weirder. Scott Adams is just one of those guys who always seems to find a way to top himself. And that's not a compliment. So, As Dilbert and Scott Adams are fading into even more irrelevancy, I hope you enjoy my talk with Mark, a guy who also loves cartoons and has a really interesting career history you'll learn about in just a sec. So, unless you're tossing your copy of The Dilbert Principle in the trash, let's draw some controversy. And here's Mark. Welcome to Drawing Controversy. Thank you. Can you first just tell people how long have you been at Crack.com and how you got really an interest in internet comedy? Uh, I started freelancing at Cracked for in uh, 2008 when I was still in university. I ended up doing more and more work for them. They kind of you know took on some of their freelancers and editorial roles. And so from 2013 to 2020, I was an editor there. Uh, I've since moved on to become an entertainment editor at Inverse.com. But uh, the attraction internet comedy, I mean, kind of being in my 
mid twenties, you know, teens, early twenties time when, you know, something awful and cracked and college humor and all, all these sites were doing very unique comedy and web comedy kind of felt like the, the place to be at the time. It was the most groundbreaking stuff felt like really stuff that was most attracting, attractive to me as a young 20 something who spent too much time online. I noticed some of like the topics you'd like to cover. You've done even recently articles criticizing cryptocurrency, you've done articles on Web 3.0, abortion bans, immigration restrictions, the landscape of media, especially as it relates right now. But you've also done some really interesting articles just about pop culture or like how pop culture intersects with those same political topics. Mm-hmm. How do you usually balance things out or decide what you want to write about? I mean, I've been fortunate enough that a lot of times we can kind of just focus on whatever is fascinating me at the time. I mean, something will get in my brain and I end up doing a deep dive into a Wikipedia page and discover there's an article here. So while you're not a cartoonist, I think one thing that's really cool about you is you've done a few articles that have covered cartoon controversies. First, just like what kind of cartoons do you love? Like what are some of your favorites? I was a, when I was a kid, I loved and still love Peanuts. I mean, that's all-time classic. I read Garfield as a kid, unironically. Now, of course, I just read it ironically. Uh, Simpsons. I actually got into Simpsons later than you would think. Like I was a kid when it started getting big, but I didn't really watch it until I was a, a teenager and realized, oh, I was really missing out on this great show. And, you know, at the time, you had, like, Futurama and Undergrads, Mission Hill, a lot of good animated cartoons out around that time. One article I thought was really funny you did was called Five Kid Shows That Changed Since You Grew Up. And if I remember correctly, the premise was kind of like, I think you and I were about the same age. There were shows we used to watch like Arthur or Thomas the Tank Engine. And we didn't realize as they kept going over the years, they did a 180, did so much to reflect the modern world. Uh, What was the research process for that article like? Um, yeah, uh, that came about because Arthur was in the news at the time because uh, Arthur's uh, teacher, Mr. Rapper, was getting married and the, the twist in the episode, it wasn't a twist, but the, the premise that he was getting married to another man, uh, another male rat, and you had the predictable conservative media outrage about it. And it turns out there's been no shortage of those sorts of stories over the years. So you thought it'd be fun, like, well, how many other Arthur-like shows can we work in? Yeah, exactly. And it's people get mad about anything because that's that's what drives uh, the traffic, unfortunately. Yeah, because as you point out, like Arthur, there was an Alabama public TV station that refused to air the episode with the gay wedding, which, as you point out, it wasn't like an after school special. It, it Part of the reason people liked it is because, mm-hmm. oh, they just treated it like, oh, it's a normal thing or something that was very appropriate for like the year it came out. And I think if I remember correctly, there was Thomas the Tank Engine with more female trains and they consult with the UN about environmental strategies. And that made all the people at like the Daily Mail and all the British tabloids upset. Yeah, they diversified their cast. I mean, I, I, I love Thomas the Tank Engine as a kid. I think we kind of think that the cartoons we loved as kids are, were, are incredibly influential and are really changing people, you know, kids' opinions today. But if I actually think about what I liked about Thomas the Tank, I don't remember a single plot line or life lesson. It's just, I remember I like trains. Trains are fun. Uh, so I don't think, you know, introducing new characters is going to unravel the fabric of society, despite what the Daily Mail is suggesting. Yeah, really. And you mentioned The Simpsons, another really good article from you. It was about Bart Simpson and the cultural perception of him being a bad influence. 
And what I thought was so original about this article is that you go into what I've always heard is that when The Simpsons came out late 1989, became really popular in the 90s, that all these authority figures, teachers, people who would speak to the media said that Bart Simpson, and he's a really bad influence kid. And you not only point out that, uh, well, no, he'd look so tame in comparison compared to South Park or like other cartoons that would come after The Simpsons. But you also point out that those same adults who claimed Bart Simpson was such a bad influence, they didn't really have it right in the first place, did they? No, I mean, Bart was in many ways, I think, uh, a sympathetic character. He, you know, he struggled in ways that were relatable. You know, he got bad grades, but tried to do better. You know, he was mean to his sister, but then he thought, oh, I crossed the line. I should apologize. And in retrospect, this whole scandal feels like something of another era. Like it's getting mad that Leave It to Beaver was too, uh, too gritty. Right. And then speaking of cultural phenomenon, that brings us to the reason I wanted to interview you. And it was about your article, How Did the Dilbert Guy's Brain Melt? And I will have to explain in just a moment to people who don't know what Dilbert is, because that's where we are right now. It's been so many years. They might not even know who Scott Adams, the guy who made Dilbert, what his deal is. But I first just want to know, just like the other two, what was your pitch for this article? What were you thinking about? How did you bring this all to fruition? So as, as a wizened old man of 34, as someone with one foot in the grave, uh, I am old enough to have read cartoons in the newspaper. And as a kid, you know, obviously Dilbert is about office culture. And, you know, as a 10-year-old, I didn't get that. But compared to, you know, Garfield or Marmaduke or, you know, Family Circus or the baffling Rex Morgan MD, I often found Dilbert very funny. Like it was, it was absurd. There was good visual gags. Uh, it was often kind of weirdly violent. And uh, later, my dad had uh, these Dilbert books. And in them, uh, Scott Adams provided commentary on his strips. And I found them like very insightful as a kid. He was kind of breaking down, why did this joke work? Why did this joke not work? Uh, often very self-deprecating. Uh, so I, I really thought, you know, Adams was this like smart, funny guy who kind of helped my interest in comedy. And then around the time of Trump's presidential campaign and onward, he got a very, very bad case of Twitter brain and became quite famous for having some of the most baffling social media takes you will ever see. So I wanted to kind of reconcile how we got from funny, successful cartoonist to a man who's pushing 70 years old, spending all his time getting angry on Twitter. We're going to back up just a little bit because first, as you say, Dilbert was this kind of interesting comic strip. And just as I, I really loved Peanuts growing up, I loved Calvin and Hobbes and The Far Side. And I too had a dad who was in the business world who had those books. And I'd say, oh, what are these cartoon books? And this is kind of funny. And Dilbert's an engineer who wears glasses, wrinkled tie. He doesn't even have a mouth. And he works a job in a cubicle. And it's based off Scott Adams, who worked at Pacific Bell and another number of humiliating and low-paying jobs. But I think even though it started in 1989 to sort of low fanfare, I think based off what I read in your article and other research, it kind of was like a Simpsons phenomenon a few years after its debut, right? Yeah, it took a couple of years to get going. Like the, the early years, they kind of focused on Dilbert's home life and dating life. And there were a lot of weird puns. But, you know, by like 93, 90, 94, he was laser focused on the absurdities of office culture. And it really hit in a way, because I think there was a, a big market for that. I mean, office culture was full of jargon and uh, you know, obnoxious middle management and people who didn't know how to use their computers. And it, you know, it, it hit on something that people were looking for. 
I think people in Time Magazine would like list the fictional character of Dilbert in 95, 96 as like the person of the year or like one of the most influential people because that's mm-hmm. just how much people were responding. Yeah, if, if you read Dilbert today, it's, it's kind of a bland series of sleepwalking punchlines, but you know, 25, 30 years ago, it was very sharp and new and insightful and big enough to get cartoons and spin-off products and essentially become a media empire that made Scott Adams very rich. And I think another thing worth noting is that Adams, he utilized the internet, which is a pretty big deal for a strip that's like popular in 1995. He's like, okay, I'm going to set up an email service. This is my website. And I'm pretty sure that made him like the first cartoonist to do so before they all did it. Yeah, he was putting his AOL email address in the comics as early as like 1993. Uh, He had a newsletter that I believe it was 1996. He had over 100,000 subscribers, which is incredible for 1996. It'd be great today. I wish I had 100,000 subscribers. Yeah, I know a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. I think because of that big of a following, he pointed out that reader suggestions were common. And that's why you get all these strips about like people's stories of annoying coworkers, ineffective management. And while you and me might have so much criticism for the guy now, I'll point out in fairness, he did have some pretty good gags, such as there's a strip where a woman demands a higher pay from HR. They're like, okay, well, write up your responsibilities for a review. And then the HR concludes, oh, you're not even qualified to do your own job, but your own subordinate is. And then there's a caption that says, this is a true story. Right, yeah. Yeah, he did. He had, I had a lot of true stories. He would take reader feedback. Like apparently a lot of people emailed him asking for a non-stereotypical female character. And so he did this very bizarre, but kind of funny punchline where a woman just poked her head in it and said, does anybody want to do some math? And it was just so weird that it kind of worked. Yeah, so that was his success as a cartoonist. But then the other thing, as your article points out, it wasn't just the cartoons that made him a household name. Scott Adams is also making books like The Dilbert Principle and The Dilbert Future, which became massive bestsellers. And he says, well, Dilbert, the cartoon character he created, he's just an employee to me. What is your take on both books that are more nonfiction, talk about real concepts in the business world? I mean, they were both bestsellers. I think in both cases, he, again, he found a very specific point to focus on. Like the Dilbert principle was kind of expanding on the Peter principle, the idea that people get promoted to their own level of ineptitude. And uh, Adams took that a step further and argued that people get promoted to get them out of the way of real work. And, you know, regardless of whether that is true or not, uh, it was a big hit. It got used in like management training. People read it, you know, I think cathartically. Uh, My dad owned a copy. I think my dad did too. Yeah. (laughs) Do you think Scott Adams is basically an example of like becoming the villain he once detested? That too simplistic? To a sense, I think to succeed in any creative endeavor, especially something like comics where not many people can be successful because there aren't that many slots in newspapers, you have to have an almost delusional level of self-belief. Like you have to believe you are good enough to justify getting up at 5 a.m. every day and grinding out this comic until they are successful. And on one level, that's very admirable because I mean, it led Adams to creating this great comic, but on another level, I think it can lead to you believing that you are great at everything, not just at telling good jokes. So I read this great book to kind of research the criticisms of Scott Adams, and it's called The Trouble with Dilbert, How Corporate Culture Gets the Last Laugh by Norman Solomon. And he points out that what you see in all these Dilbert comics, 
you see stupid bosses, management practices, buzzwords, coworker interns, consultants, temps and tech innovations, some lip service paid to outsourcing, expanded workdays, small physical space. But what it's not being used to address, the strip is not addressing export of jobs to cheap labor, prison labor, workfare labor, racism, union busting, corporate welfare, stress, sexual harassment, glass ceilings, planned obsolescence, workplace injuries, hazardous materials, lobbyists, and the very real concept of the Federal Reserve manipulating interest rates to maintain unemployment. As much doesn't really seem like something you're going to see in a three-panel Dilbert strip. Right. Um, yeah, Dilbert was almost very defeatist. I mean, it's the premise was your boss is stupid. Many of your coworkers are stupid too. Your job is pointless all you can do is laugh at it. Yeah, he seems to really make this framing in the Dilbert principle. And I think also in the Dilbert future that, oh, you know what, we're all idiots. Everyone's idiots. You're all individuals, D-U-H. Mm-hmm. And those are the people who are going to get screwed. And the people who are going to succeed are, yeah, the people who realize it's all a joke. And apparently there's not much you can do if you're in that situation, except maybe buy his products. I don't know. Yeah, that that was the premise of books and also his newsletter. And then I feel like his more recent books, you know, the one about Trump and uh, the way of the weasel or about how to take advantage of that. So he kind of went from, you know, this is just how life is. Let's accept it and laugh at it to actually we can profit from it. Yeah. And I think it's in the Dilbert principle. He does do a good job of pointing out corporate incompetency. He says like, in his opening few pages, a major tech company simultaneously rolled out two new programs. The first one was a random drug testing program, and the second was an individual dignity enhancement program. And he points out another company that said, okay, we want to curb laptop thefts. These are your work laptops. We have them bolted to your desk. So you get moments like that, but then you get the really sinister side of him that's telling the real life idiot bosses he claims to criticize so much, Hey, you should keep downsizing. Downsizing is good for everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he doesn't seem very interested in actually improving the lives of workers. He just wants to, you know, make life better for the few people he thinks are intelligent enough to appreciate it, himself included, I suppose. I think the important thing to summarize as far as his views on downsizing went, this is around the mid-90s, the strip blows up and everyone's talking to him like he's the biggest expert in management and in business. He's saying like, okay, we need to make it so that we don't have frivolous positions. We only have exactly what we need. And that means no frivolous HR positions, no wasting our time with diversity and sexual harassment seminars. He praises a company that got rid of janitors by having all the employees just take out their own waste baskets. And all the while, he's kind of ignorant of the fact that, oh, well, when these real life bosses decide we're going to lay off people. We're going to downsize. Once they're kind of out of options to do that, they're just going to start cutting people's HMOs and cutting their breaks. And a Newsweek article addressing all this says, well, at least those workers can take comfort in the Dilbert strip. They have pinned to their cubicle. Right. Yeah. And maybe not coincidentally, that was when he probably had a lot of money by that point and was perhaps starting to be a little removed from you know some of the day-to-day concerns he would have had for years as a, a low-level grunt in various companies. Yeah. And I think, you know, kind of the same way people dismiss 
like say the president they don't like. I'm thinking like people would say this about George W. Bush all the time. Oh, he's just an idiot. It made easy commentary. And the reason that was so dangerous is because no, the guy, he says some stupid stuff out loud, but he's very cunning and calculating as are these bosses that people like Scott Adams get to point out are so stupid, such idiots, and yet they're screwing over their workforce. And, and you know what I think really illustrates his hypocrisy is he's criticizing like buzzwords. He thinks it's so silly when like the company does just stupid stuff to promote synergy. And yet he makes money off partnering with Intel, which laid off all their workers despite the obscene amount of profits. Uh, but he partnered with Xerox, who I got to find this because I'm like, wait, isn't this the stuff you were making fun of? There was a Dilbert do-it-yourself booklet. Remember, he's saying like these HR positions, all these stuff the company doesn't need, like it's just slowing them down. But yet he's like, okay, using Dilbert, licensing Dilbert characters to say, empowerment results in growth and productivity. Empowerment equals direction and communication plus ownership plus the way we work equals growth and productivity. Yeah, it's very hard to be countercultural and successful at the same time. And I think he very much drifted into, well, I'll just take the money, make this product. And of course, now if you read his Twitter account or you know, watch his YouTube videos, he is very much using all the jargon he used to mock. I mean, he unironically bragged about triggering, quote, his critics, which I think is something he would have mocked viciously in the 90s. Yeah. So aside from letting these corporations, he seemed to belittle, kind of feel completely non-threatened by his work and act actively partnering with him. He also did a partnership with Lockheed Martin after they got caught in a bribery scandal. So. Oh, really? Yeah, that I was not aware of. Yeah, no, uh, let me find my exact notes just so I'm, I'm saying <laughs> I better make sure I'm 100% correct in this. My first problem with him is like, yeah, is he praises downsizing and he sees no issue with Intel making $5.2 billion, laying off their workers and then preventing their workers from going to websites where former Intel employees speak about the injustices working for the company. I didn't realize until doing research for this episode, Adams promoted the Ethics Challenge program of Lockheed Martin, a program Lockheed Martin launched after they violated the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, where they bribed an Egyptian legislator into buying <laughs> millions of dollars worth of transport planes. That, that's fantastic. I mean, that's, what, what, what year was that? I want to say it was like 10 or so years ago, but okay. as Scott Adams said in like 95 to the Washington Post, he never had any integrity. He's mm -hmm. just a guy with an MBA. That's fine because he, he would take shots at those companies when it suited him. Like he, he did this stunt where he, you know, went into Logitech and pretended to be a big shot consultant and gave this speech full of jargon, real nonsense and fooled all the executives and think it was profound and got a bunch of news stories about how he had shown how you know empty modern management is but then he'll turn around and chill for them if it has a paycheck in it it's the fact that adams he views stuff like that he's like okay all that jargon filled language he views that as stupid and then turns around and is pretty much promoting those same companies but then he's also criticizing say racial diversity training and sexual harassment seminars was that a pretty good sign of where things were headed? Because in just a moment, we're going to go into the start of his Twitter brain. Mm -hmm. I think so. I, he, he's, he's made fun of that, I think, throughout his whole career. But at least in the 90s, he did it in very weird and absurd ways. Whereas nowadays, he seems to be trying to 
almost begged to get canceled, quote unquote, so he can do the, uh, you know, the cancellation tours that a lot of right wing commentators do. Like a, a recent Dilbert run had a a, uh, a black employee identifying as white, and he seemed very proud of how edgy he was being. Yeah, and it's worth noting, so that was the first Black character in the strip after 33 years, and a weird punchline is that while many newspapers refused to print that strip, there were a few that did anyway, but the strip was in Black and white, and the Mm -hmm. person, the Black man who identifies as white, just looked white, so people didn't even get the joke. Mm -hmm. I think that, that kind of shows he's maybe phoning in a bit these, I mean, it worked online. Uh, I think that's probably how most people read comics these days anyway, but maybe not thinking of the, the finer details anymore. And he kind of always did this. In the 90s, he made fun of feminisms with Tina, the tech writer, who's a woman who just gets offended by anything implying women are powerless. Like Dogbert says, uh, oh, the Venus de Milo has no arms. And she's like, oh, well, you're saying like women have no power. And you'd see a few of those. And that, I think, led up to the very first instance I ever heard of him, like, just going off the rails. Like, your article kind of implies, maybe was always there. But it was that 2011 blog post he had about men's rights activists. Do you remember that? Yeah, he was kind of playing devil's advocate, defending them. I believe he compared women to children and the mentally handicapped, but only as part of his ingenious thought experiment to prove some elaborate point i think we really have to break it down because it's like it's that but then there's so many weird tangents he went with that this is in 2011 i think it was like the dilbert website he has his own separate blog Mm -hmm. he was basically saying okay these men's rights movements men's rights activists they complain about sexist practices of the legal system. They complain about the draft. They complain about the lower life expectancy and higher suicide rates of men. They complain about the overrepresentation of women in certain job fields. And then Adams ups the ante by saying like, oh, and geez, can't you believe men will have to hold the doors open for women and let them be served first in restaurants. And there's more women in college than men and men have to pay more in car insurance. And he like concedes, okay, well, even if the stats justify the car insurance rates, we wouldn't allow it if it was the other way around. He does all that. And then the twist is, first he says to men's rights activists, get over it, you bunch of pussies. Right. What's your immediate reaction to that? <laughs> I mean, he's at first, you know, it almost sounds like he's, yeah, you know, he's making fun of them in his own very specific way. But then as I think you're about to reveal, he takes it in a, another direction. Yeah. And I think it is worth noting that while it does sound like, hey, well, what's there to complain about? He said to these men's rights activists, hey, just shut up. You're a bunch of privileged, whiny, like misogynists. I think he thinks that's what he was saying, but that's not really what he's saying. He's kind of saying like, well, life's unfair. What are you going to do about it? And the reason I think that is because the part that got him in trouble is he's saying the reason women earn 80 cents to the dollar is because women negotiate differently than men. Men are more likely to choose career success over family, unlike the majority of women. And when women complain about that, the way to handle it is the way you handle a four-year-old who complains he can't have candy for dinner, or the way uh, you can't punch a mentally disabled person who punches you first. Right. At best, it's like a, you know, edgy early 2000s stand-up routine gone horribly awry. At worst, it's, you know, revealing some of his inner thoughts more than he intended to. Uh, I think it's worth noting that 
on his email newsletter, he often did many, you know, thought experiments. They weren't to this extreme, but, you know, he liked to play around with weird, bizarre, controversial ideas. But on a, a newsletter, you know, everyone who is subscribing presumably likes you to some level and you kind of control the tone, like they know your tone, you know, if they don't like something you say, they might email you back, but they're probably just going to like unsubscribe or ignore it. But once he transitioned to like blog posts and Twitter and YouTube, suddenly he's not just addressing his fans, he's addressing the world. And when the world criticized and sometimes made fun of him, I don't think he quite knew how to respond to that. That's what's so interesting about this case is this is still 2011. People obviously were using social media a lot. But the way social media translated into our perception of public figures and how that resulted in them getting employed or how that became its own culture war, this was almost like the start of this. And yes, it is worth mentioning that he did plan this as a thought experiment, or at least he claims he did. What he said was, is that, okay, I know what kind of reaction I'm going to get for comparing women complaining about unequal pay to children complaining about candy. He's like, I'm not saying they're the same. I'm saying the way you deal with that Mm -hmm. is disturbingly similar. Now that of course does get justifiable outrage, but then that is what he claims is the whole point is I'm saying that there's certain ideas you can't discuss without everyone getting so unreasonable, without getting too emotional. Before I go any further, what are your thoughts on that? Because it still takes a weird turn after he says that. Yeah. I mean, I think he may have just been covering his ass there to some degree. I also think this is a guy who likes getting attention even if he has to say some very outrageous things to do it like everyone making fun of him maybe isn't a loss in his book because they are still talking about him yeah and he'd go on to say the reason i'm kind of like okay but did you plan this as an experiment or are you really implying you're so thick skinned that you just love messing with people and Mm -hmm. getting them all outraged he made sock puppet accounts he went to Mm -hmm. forums like reddit and probably ones that are just laughably out of date in the year we're having this discussion right yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, but what he did is under pseudonyms he was saying things like it's fair to say you disagree with adams but you can't rule out the hypothesis that you're too dumb to understand what he's saying and he's a certified genius just saying and then going to other people saying like well you're just jealous and angry that he's more successful than you and going to a feminist blog to say well, at least my blog has a high level of reading comprehension. Yeah, and th- this, I think it's worth knowing that by this point, he had millions of dollars and was living in a house that has its own tennis court inside of it. Like, I saw that just, video you sent me. I yeah, you gotta, you gotta log off, man. You gotta go enjoy your life, enjoy your fancy house. You don't have to be picking fights on the internet when you have that much money. <laughs> yeah, and I think what's funny is he didn't learn anything from this. You mentioned the whole uh, having a black character who identified as white. He used the same defense, which is like, oh, your outrage was the whole point. This was all my secret evil plan. It's funny because he did a a similar storyline like uh, a year or so ago, kind of making fun of Sass trying to engender controversy about like Black Lives Matter and like equality movements in corporations. And no one cared. Like there was no one noticed. There was no commentary on it. And so he seemingly tried again to to better success, quote unquote, this year. Yeah. Um, And so there are a few more things he did that I think, I don't know, we just still have to unpack this because I really can't believe a guy who's like first just making three panel comics that 
took off, hit it big in the newspapers, is then going um, on about how society is organized in such a way that the natural instincts of men are shameful and criminal, while the natural instincts of women are mostly legal and acceptable. And this is a whole rant where he goes on about how there will be a future with chemical castration, oxytocin drugs, and artificial insemination, because he's basically implying that men naturally are like bound to rape. I, I feel like at this point, even if you didn't know this, you probably guessed that he was very divorced by this time. <laughs> right. No. So that was the question. Um, I remember, I think it was on crack to hear about this 2011 scandal about the men's rights activists mm-hmm. uh, blog post. And someone pointed out, like, what's with his deal? He's still married. OK, by this point, he very much was not. And maybe it's because he would go on by 2015. He just kept going on about like, oh, it's like a double standard that the man pays for the woman at dinner and holds the door open for her. And then he's like, yeah, men will become cold-blooded killers if they are deprived of hugging. And I just kind of checked out when he starts comparing that to the Syrian refugee crisis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he got he got divorced in 2014 and definitely ratcheted up. But I mean, that's the problem with Adams is, again, you never know how serious he's being. Like, how much of this does he actually believe? And how much of this is he trying to engender controversy or how much of this is quote an elaborate thought experiment unquote those those lines are always very blurry with him well you correctly cite a contradiction between him in your article where you're talking about the dilbert animated sitcom it aired on upn from 1999 to 2000 if i have that right and at first scott adams's answer to why did the show get canceled in interviews years after the fact was eh, it was on upn a network almost no one watched it had a terrible time slot the lead-in show was also bad and they switched it around so they were never going to get consistent viewership now contrast that to the summer of 2020 when i didn't realize this until i looked at the links in your article it was ahmed best the guy who played jar jar binks in the star wars prequels he tweets he was criticizing a hollywood reporter article that pointed out that lena dunham the writer director At age 23, she sold her show Girls to HBO with only a page and a half pitch with little planning. And he was just kind of saying like, well, geez, I'm a black guy with 25 years of experience. I've been a professor. I've had many screenplays. I fully organized my arcs and all my seasons, everything. And the people I pitch it to are like, that's not enough. And then Scott Adams pops in, I don't know why, (laughs) to say, Well, I lost my TV show for being white when UPN decided it would focus on an African-American audience. Right. Yeah, he really waded into the conversation out of nowhere. And I mean, you know, networks change their program approach all the time. You know, it's very hard to get shows made. It's very hard to keep shows on the air. The idea that there's some sort of greater controversy is is nonsense or you know greater in- conspiracy against him is nonsense but you know i think 20 years ago when the show went off the air he could laugh it off because you know dilbert was still successful and you know he got a couple years out of it it was a pretty good cartoon uh but now it's 2020 and he spends too much of his time picking fights on the internet yeah so that kind of brings us to scott adams at his strangest the mm-hmm. first thing i wanted to ask you was what is God's debris? Because Adam says this will be part of his legacy. 
Yeah, so in uh, God's Degree is a, a novella he released in 2001. It's a philosophical thought experiment. I mean, there's, there's a plot, but essentially just two characters talking to each other about philosophy. And it's kind of an exploration of, uh, you know, the nature of knowledge and the nature of consciousness and everything else that was on Adams's mind at the time and the the title comes from the you know this idea that you know what if the big bang was caused by an omnipotent god blowing himself up because he was tired of knowing everything and then you know the debris is the you know the matter that makes up the universe and the universe is slowly reassembling itself and starting to understand itself again none of which is related to satire or office culture or anything you'd associate with Scott Adams. And so when he went to his publisher and said, hey, I wrote this philosophical book. It's not funny at all. Uh, do you want to publish it? They said, no. Why would we do that? <laughs> uh, that's right. insane. But they, they struck a compromise where they, they sold it as an ebook, uh, like a cheap ebook. And uh, Adams promoted it in his uh, newsletter, which, as we mentioned earlier, had hundreds of thousands of, uh, of uh, subscribers. And it became a big enough hit that they could sell a hard copy. And it ended up, I believe, moving hundreds of thousands of copies. We'll remember Scott Adams for that. And maybe the Dill Burrito, which was his, he had invested in a few restaurants and he had tried to make a vegetarian burrito line, which I don't think went very far, did it? No, it did not. Uh, he also had a follow-up to God's Debris called The Religion War, uh, which is even stranger. It's essentially he posits a future where, you know, there's this conflict between Christian extremists and Muslim extremists and how we solve that. And again, not funny at all, very straight-laced. To me, the oddest part is that when they came out, he was like, hey, I wrote these. I think they're fun. I think they're interesting. Here they are. Take them or leave them. Like, you know, I can't blame the guy for trying to branch out and do something different. But now, as you said... These days saying, oh, these are my ultimate legacy. Look at how smart they are. He's, he's evolved from saying, you know, this is something fun I did too. I am a genius. Look at how smart I am. And that brings us to another recent venture of his called WenHub. Can you explain what WenHub was? WenHub was an app that uh, uh, he and some partners created to, uh, the idea was that it would connect you with experts. So if you needed to talk to an engineer for whatever reason, they would have a list of engineers you would talk to. If you needed legal advice, you would you know find a lawyer or whatever else. And I guess this was an app for people who didn't know how to use Google. And shockingly, it is now very dead. But the most tension ever got was when he suggested, I believe you need to find psychologists after a mass shooting. Well, right. So sometime in 2019, there was a very tragic shooting that happened at the Gilroy garlic festival three people died 12 were wounded and then he tweeted if you were a witness to the gilroy garlic festival and i just kind of was discussing it says hashtag gilroy garlic festival which was probably trending because there was a very tragic shooting there which at the time of recording really is nothing to laugh at please sign on to interface by WenHub, free app he puts in parentheses and you can set your price to take calls use keyword gilroy yeah, and I had never heard of this app before the shooting. I never heard another word about it afterwards. So, I mean, is this him, you know, just being insensitive or is this like a calculated marketing move that, I mean, again, it got him attention. I think he thinks all attention is good attention at this point. He sounded a little more rational when, like surprisingly rational compared to what he says in the last few years, where the Washington Post reaches out for comment about this little mini scandal 
And he says like, okay, you know what? I do apologize to the victims of the tragedy and I do accept criticisms. And if I were my own boss, which I mean, I guess he is, he's like, I would have fired myself too over this tweet. It's worth noting. I think I was like trying to Google what is WenHub? Like I just couldn't, I didn't know how to explain it. It has like less than 500 people who follow it on LinkedIn. And even then I'm not even sure if it's the real thing. I guess that's my answer to where is it now? Yeah, it's very dead. It was a huge flop as far as I can tell. I also could find very little information. All the websites about it are now dead. Uh, it's not the only app he launched that failed. He had a calendar app for a while that was basically this, you know, Google Calendar, but slightly better. And obviously it couldn't compete with Google. So before we get into his praise of Donald Trump, I did want to go over this Twitter thread that went viral like a few months ago. Right, yeah. Where uh, it was actually, I don't know if you personally knew these people uh, from your time at Crack, Jack O'Brien and Miles Gray on the Daily Zeitgeist. They were going over what made news was this thread where Scott Adams gave a blow by blow by the numbers, like about events in his life. And it goes five is the number of times he's had a gun pointed to his head. Zero is the number of fights he'd been in. He kind of implies like, oh, it's because these bullies who tried to attack me, I outsmarted them with my smarts. And then right. five to seven is the number of times $50,000 or more was Scott stolen. And that three was the number of incurable health issues he cured himself. Yeah, Twitter had quite the field day with that one. Jack was my old boss for a while, so I'm glad he got to riff on this. Uh, I, I think I can actually explain the the gun and the, the $50,000 tweets. Oh, please do. I have no idea what he's talking about. So... Uh, in his biography, uh, you know, before he worked for Pacific Bell, he worked at a bank for uh, seven or eight years. He mentioned in one of his Dilbert books, I, you know, related to some punchline about a bank that he said he had been robbed at gunpoint working as a bank teller several times. And, you know, I don't know if that's true. Maybe he was exaggerating, but, you know, guy who works at bank experiencing bank robbery, not implausible. Uh, I think the weird part is that he tweeted that without any context whatsoever for no apparent purpose whatsoever. <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's like he didn't make a blog post. He wasn't commenting on some controversy. Yeah, what was that about? And yeah, the fact that if he had just said, I, I should have known based off the research I'd done that like, yeah, he worked at a bank. Okay, that makes way more sense rather than just like that people have some kind of vendetta against him. <laughs> right. But it, it did lead to some really good jokes. Um, I'll put in the show notes this article that includes these tweets. Snarky people on Twitter who go, Danny Ocean. All right, guys, here's the score. There's 50,000 in unmarked bills at Scott Adams' house. You know the drill. We've already done this like five to seven times. Yeah. <laughs> Another guy said, you can't shoot me in the head. I created Dilbert, Scott Adams, on five separate occasions in his life. <laughs> I, I've read that, uh, that last one several times, and it makes me laugh every time. <laughs> And again, like, did, did Adams do this because he knew this would get him a bunch of attention and all negative attention is good attention? Or does he just not care? Does he not understand enough about Twitter? Does he not care? I don't know, man. So if you did hear about Scott Adams in the last few years, even if you're like, okay, I don't even know what Dilbert is, or I like kind of knew about it because it was my parents' favorite comic strip, people may have seen his name because he was very interested in Donald Trump and used everything he had praised about him in his blog post and on Twitter into a book called Win Bigly. And honestly, the cover just makes me kind of gag as it's Dogbert with his 
arms up all orange like with the trump hairdo the hair and, swoosh yeah yeah did you actually read the book i'm um, in preparation for your article or any uh i read some of it it's it's a bit of a slog to be honest and very repetitive definitely not the quality of his other books uh but yeah there's a whole generation of people you know younger people who just know scott adams as this weird guy on twitter who talks about getting guns stuck in his head and how much he read it and how much he loves trump yeah and you know i think there's actually some unintentional similarities between Adam's praise of Trump and his career being the Dilbert cartoonist. Dilbert, he's like, oh, you know, my cartoon spoke to the workers who felt invisible, just like Trump does to the voters who felt invisible. And it's like, okay, both are technically true, but the criticisms of both is just that the Dilbert cartoon was actually used in service by the real life evil bosses that he claimed to lampoon so much. Trump, who's he really speaking to when he's like getting the support of the invisible voter? Yeah, and Adams was never really interested in Trump, as far as I can tell, in like the like policy sense. Like he's never like going on about his foreign policy or his tax plan or whatever. He was interested in how he how he won, and you know, at least according to Adams, you know, he predicted all the methods Trump would use to win the election. Right, and in Adams' terms, he calls Trump a master wizard, and that's his term for experts in hypnosis. And he keeps talking about, okay, Trump is the greatest or Trump is really great because he has wonderful techniques of pacing and leading. Before I really dive into that, I, I think what you're saying is true based off like the Washington Post article I read uh, where he apologized for his tweet after the Gilroy shooting. He's like, yeah, I don't really agree with um, his immigration policies or some of his inflammatory rhetoric, but it's just more important that he's a success. We should have a successful president. And I don't really know what that means if it doesn't translate to policy. And, and another thing you wisely pointed out was that he kind of acts like, oh, I'm just into chaos. You know, I don't really care who's president. And you're like, yeah, because the rich famously stay out of politics. Yeah, you're, yeah. You, you can afford to not care about tax policies because he's rich. Um, it's probably worth noting that Adams is very into hypnosis to the point where on New Year's Eve 2015, he wrote a blog post about how to achieve a better orgasm via uh, yes. hypnosis. Yes, he did. Uh, you know, what he says specifically is, my language skills activate your sex drive and you know it. He, he had posted photos online in a series of essays on how to deploy hypnosis and persuasion for better orgasms. I don't know if, if it's fair of me to correlate this with the fact that he's been divorced, he's now dating a woman who's like over 30 years younger than him, and he refuses to say where they met, but like she's an Instagram model with like 2.5 million followers, and he says like, you know how she succeeded. Her Use of SEO and strategic use of side boob. Side boob, yes. They tragically are, are now divorced as well as of a few months ago. Yeah. <laughs> shocking, shocking development. She got out before it got too crazy, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We talk a lot about what does he really believe. He's still on it about like, okay, uh, Trump supporters, like if Hillary Clinton, if Joe Biden gets elected, people like us are going to be hunted in the streets. Right, and like, he, I think he's smart enough to not really believe the Democrats were going to be hunted down, but he he likes getting that controversy, that attention. So he says the weird stuff. 
do you think there's any merit when he's talking about Trump's persuasive techniques? Because what he says about Trump is that like Trump is like the car salesman who asks you, well, what color do you want? And kind of tricks your brain into accepting like, oh, I, I wasn't going to buy a car, but now you're asking me about color. I, I guess, okay, what color do I want for this car? I've now been persuaded to buy. And that's what he does when he lies about his net worth, but already implants the idea that I am a rich man or when he like makes these really inflammatory statements but then scales it back like he got you outraged but then he like he tones it down a bit and then you're like you think he's not so bad like is this true and like it my opinion is kind of like well if there are other criticisms why why do people not pay attention to them I mean sure they watch Trump but can't they pay attention to literally anything else Yeah, I mean, honestly, I don't think there's much truth to it. I mean, we'll be talking about the 2016 election, analyzing it, you know, long after we're all gone. But I think that really came from a lot of people seeing a guy who could rip up the system as we have it and voting out of frustration, not because Trump is secretly a master manipulator who understands the human mind on a level we can only hope to. Do you see what he says to people anytime anyone brings up Charlottesville? Uh, no, I do not. Uh, what What does he say? So he's done a few different things. He's had like what he calls the funnel where it's like, this is what I find most fascinating about it is that what he does, it has the Scott Adams brand of weirdness, but it also employs many techniques I see other right-wing commentators use, which is kind of funny because he claims like, oh, I'm not like a Republican. I'm not like right-wing. I just happen to be really fascinated by Trump. Like anyone who knows, Trump, he equated actual neo-Nazis, fascists, to the people protesting against them, kind of implying, okay, both are bad, and then defended the worst types of people by saying, well, they're people, they're fine people. Right. It's a, it's a simplistic view, but what he does is he says, okay, he never called those people fine people. Well, actually, this is an easier thing. Have you seen like that PragerU video where like where, what their explanation of it? Because I noticed it's like almost the same thing. Right, just nitpicking the the wording instead of being at the actual point. Yeah, because they ignore that, okay, that speech where he says, I outright condemn white nationalism, that was his third speech, not the first and only. And that came two speeches after he did a poor job of communicating that because he seemed like it wasn't a big deal. He said there was violence on many sides. So what Adams claims, what many conservative critics claim is that, okay, Trump said the bad people, the, the fine people on both sides, he's saying it's those who wanted the Robert E. Lee statue taken down in Charlottesville, Virginia, versus those who did not want it. He was like saying they both had a valid form of free expression and he hated the Nazis, the white nationalists. It had nothing to do with them. This is the lie. It's that there were no people advocating for the removal of the statue the night of, you've seen those pictures, right? Of like the tiki torches, the march mm-hmm. that were their screams. Yeah. you will not replace us. So the thing is, they weren't there. And the other group he refers to were this group called American Warrior Revolution, who knew exactly what they came for. They claimed to the New York Times, oh, you know, we just care about history. We're just, we just don't think the statue should be removed. No, but the reality is they knew who they were siding with, the Proud Boys, all those awful people. Mm-hmm. And they were willing to defend them. And they very well knew this was promoted as a white supremacist rally and that the phrase is like, Jews will not replace us, you will not replace us, white lives matter would be spouted. What Scott Adams has to do with that is he claims that the people who were there, he first acts like none of that is true. He acts like, no, see, President Trump said that the white nationalists were bad and liberals are too stupid to take him at his word. And even mm-hmm. if 
they watch the video. What he does is he's like, okay, and even the other people were there. There is no way they knew it was a Nazi rally. I showed a flyer to a guy and he had no idea. (laughs) Yeah, I I think Adams presents himself and maybe thinks of himself as someone who is kind of above the fray. Like he is providing the analysis and it's up to you to, to do what you will with it. But I... Don't think that's true because his Trump commentary kind of revitalized his career. I mean, he got two book deals out of it. So he's as invested as the rest of us, if not more so. I think the punchline to Charlottesville, the the reason I noticed, like, wait, where where does his mind go when all this is mentioned is, do you know, there's this Jewish currents journalist, his name's David Cleon. And he got in an argument with Scott Adams. Scott Adams, like, going on about, this is a lie. There was some criticism about Trump, and he was like, that's a lie, and it's the same lie, just like the people who say that he said there were fine people on both sides in Charlottesville. And this guy, David Cleon, just responds, I'm embarrassed I once liked your comic <laughs> right, yeah. And then Scott Adams like, well, that's a dipshit response, and then blocked him. It's, again, just log off, man. You gotta, gotta log off. If I had your money... I would tweet something like, just tipped a generous 7% on my well-done steak, put some ketchup on it, it was great, and then I would delete Twitter and never look at it again. But he's on there every day, fighting the good fight. Yeah, and you know, among his other hot takes is that Trump isn't really a racist, because anytime he referred to people of color as animals, it's justified. Uh, That whole shithole countries comment. Well, that's in response to economic situations. That time Trump thought this judge was biased for being Hispanic was a valid opinion. And that it's okay that Trump mocked non-citizens and people with disabilities because he's an equal opportunity offender. Mm-hmm. And that's what they all do. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the comedy that made Dilbert work came from being very contrarian and kind of picking apart, you know, the, the logic of the day. And I feel like he's taken that to Twitter. But sometimes being contrarian just means you're being wrong. <laughs> You're in the minority opinion for a reason. You know what's proof of that is he defended Trump University saying like, you know, once you have your success, you have to stand your ground. You you can't give them an inch because then they'll take a mile. And he said it was just a licensing deal, despite the fact that the Trump organization owned like 93% of Trump University. Again, same corporate malfeasance he seems to not have a problem with. I think one thing that was pretty insane as he said 90 percent of racial justice protesters in the summer of 2020 were brainwashed by the movie joker uh, joker was a bit of a a, a boogeyman uh, among certain media in general there for a while which i found very funny after that uh adams went very into the the galaxy brain covid takes if you investigate those at all yeah what are some of his stranger opinions i think i i can't believe for all i looked into i i saw like he got he came under scrutiny for retweeting Candace Owens and was defended by Jack Pozabiek. And he went after um, critics of his by checking what occupation they were and like trying to shame them for it. But mm-hmm. I, I can only imagine it got worse under COVID. Yeah, like now he was stuck in the side and Twitter right there in front of him. On his uh, Twitter profile right now, his bio says number one best predictor in the country during the pandemic. And then there's a link to all of his predictions so you can audit them for yourself. But they're all so vague. Like he said, well, I predicted that maybe there was a lab leak and 
some people have theorized that. So I was right. And I predicted that we would close borders with China. And obviously during a pandemic, there is, you know, borders get closed. So he was right. And I said, face masks probably work except for when they don't in certain situations. So I am a genius and I was right. Yeah. And among other like antics I I thought were strange of his was there was this business insider editor. His name was John Cook. He compared Scott Adams to Nation of Islam leader, Louis Farrakhan, by saying he's like, he's Louis Farrakhan, but with an incel twist. And Adams responded by like, I'm going to send my lawyers after you. <laughs> yeah, that, that checks out. Again, this is, you know, on the verge of a second divorce. He's got a lot of time on his hands. The same way he has those weird predictions when people pointed out like, okay, and what about this whole Republicans will be hunted dead if Biden gets elected? He's like, I have yet to be proven wrong. Yeah. I don't know where that comes from. I mean, that, I mean, yeah, that's that's the great thing about his predictions. You can say, well, it might come true eventually. You don't know. He's also uh, shilling for Joe Rogan uh, in one of his predictions, which is always a warning sign to me, I think. Oh, I, I think so, too. And it's funny because I get in arguments with people all the time about that. And But at this point, it's like, I think everything insane he did came first. And you didn't mm-hmm. need him to be associated with a guy like Joe Rogan for that to happen. One day, Scott Adams is going to go on Joe Rogan, and Joe Rogan's going to have to explain to a bunch of people who Scott Adams is. <laughs> yeah, I know. But the thing is, is that that is kind of like the, the dilemma about him is he's able to leverage the success he's had as a more normal cartoonist, author, business speaker. He doesn't really translate well to like, oh, and I am the person, the Gen Z whisperer who like <laughs> speaks to their strange politics. He doesn't have that personality, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all like, again, I think Dilbert at its peak was fantastic. He really hit into something and capitalized on it. But I think he's also become a warning sign of being brilliant at one thing does not mean you're brilliant at everything. And, you know, it's okay to try new things, but don't call yourself a genius for your Twitter takes because you are good at writing cartoons. You know, as a note to conclude, I wonder about comics like Calvin and Hobbes and The Far Side, they're enjoyed by people who like were born after both strips ended. And the thing is, those strips, they famously had cartoonists Mm -hmm. who they quit while they were ahead and they just kind of laid low and you, you know almost nothing about them because they give like scant interviews. Am I going, am I being too melodramatic to almost wonder like if they were on Twitter or like were there any warning signs there? Because I think they kind of took that approach you said, which is they just log off. They enjoy their success. And if mm-hmm. they have any controversial opinions, they just keep it to themselves. Yeah, Charles Schultz was lucky enough to die before social media got big. Uh, he always seemed like a very you know gentle, laid back man who kept his opinions to himself. And Bill Watterson, uh, for all we know, is it sounds like he's enjoying his retirement. Very happy man. I don't think Dilbert is going to be remembered uh, all that well partially because of scott adams antics but mostly it's, it's it's very of its time like a lot of the punchlines are very topical yeah i know what do we really do we're all working from home i mean then it's like oh and that's if you're even lucky enough to have a job and then mm-hmm. we criticize him for like his praise of downsizing for all these scaling back of benefits in the workplace but then like you have a generation it's like wait you used to have all that when you got into your job and the yeah, job yeah. was full time and yeah, I would take a corporate job in 1991 if I think a lot of people would these days. <laughs> but I guess that's what happens when certain things go long enough. Mm, I mean, it happens to most creative endeavors. It certainly happened to The Simpsons, which we discussed earlier. Kind of had the same arc in a weird way. They both came out in 89. They were big for a bit, and now they're just sleepwalking. 
yeah through one gag after another yeah and at least people like you and me explaining the cultural significance to people who never even got a whiff of it back when it was that's right yeah well mark hill thank you so much for joining me and talking about your article your work and all your thoughts on this anything you'd like to plug uh yeah thank you very much for having me uh i have a twitter account it's at m-e-h-i-l because someone stole the name with two l's and I have a, a new collection of horror stories called Ephemera, which you can find on Amazon. Check it out if you like horror. Well, thanks again.